If you were going to go out on the street today, or even to Walmart, and just ask the average person this question, what's the greatest news the world has ever heard in all of human history? I wonder what kind of answer you'd get, just from the average person on the street. There are those of you here this morning that uh, are part of the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw called it, that lived through World War II and those things, and so maybe someone might answer, well, it was the day they said the war was over. And that certainly would have been good news for you. Someone else might say, well, it's the day we, we put a man on the moon. That was good news. Maybe a little more recently, it was when, uh, well, when they said Y2K wasn't the end of the world. How many of you remember all the scary around Y2K? Yes. Yeah, just the thing of the past now. I don't know what the average person on the street would say, but I would rather suspect that none of them would say anything remotely close to what we're going to see in the scriptures today. I don't even think it'd be on their radar. And yet, it's the greatest news the world has ever heard. And there's even a holiday, obviously, associated with this event, and it's celebrated all over the world as well, but you need to know it's probably the most misunderstood holiday of all of them. One commentator said, and I quote, other holidays honor famous people or commemorate significant historical events, as for example, President's Day, Independence Day, Veterans Day during the United States. Christmas, however, honors a divine person and remembers a divine event. It does not celebrate human achievement, but divine accomplishment. Santa Claus, crowded shopping malls, office parties, alcohol consumption, gift-giving, holiday decorations do not reflect the true meaning of Christmas. You understand that there is nothing man-made about the Christmas story, right? Nothing man-made about that. It's the most miraculous, compelling narrative in history as the Holy Spirit relates the dramatic story of Jesus' birth. Those who truly celebrate Christmas do so by remembering and that profound reality that God sent His only begotten Son into this world to save those who would accept Him as their personal Lord and Savior. So today we come to Luke chapter 2, back to the Gospel of Luke today. Luke chapter 2 and His account of the birth of Jesus. And we're going to look at the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. It came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste. And found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Now, there are several things I want you to notice about this passage. First of all, I want you to notice the plan of God. God's plan. Verse 1 says, It came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, it's believed that that census was for taxation purposes, so that Rome could collect and get more tax money from the citizens of the empire. And you need to know that even though Caesar Augustus issued the decree, he is not the one calling the shots here. God is. God is in control. Everything is going according to God's plan. Not someone else's plan. Certainly not Caesar Augustus' plan. In fact... This Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So God turned Caesar's heart to issue this decree. Proverbs 16 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Folks, we're not in control. God is. We are not God. God is God. So everything's going according to God's plan. And you might be sitting there thinking, well then, why, why am I in the mess I'm in? Why am I facing all these difficult circumstances? Why, why is our world in such a mess? And here's what you need to know. God can work through all of the messes to bring about his plan and his glory and our good. God uses all of that to draw people to his son, to form and to fashion you and I into the image of Christ. And if, folks, if every day, if every day the sun were shining and you never had some rain, everything in your life would die. You ever stop to think about that? 
there'd be a famine. There, there'd have to be storms, so there'll be rain, so the earth can be watered and, and it can flourish. You can have food and trees and shade and all of that. That's just built into the universe, but the same thing is true of your life. If you're going to become all God wants you to be, if you're going to grow to fullness and complete maturity in Christ, you have to experience some storms in your life, some rain. And what we have to remember is that it's all going to accomplish God's plan because He can take anything and bring good out of it and accomplish His plan through it. So to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, God worked through Caesar to issue a decree that would bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. He moved the heart of the most powerful man in all the world of that time. Dr. John MacArthur said, The emperor, seated on his throne in the capital city of Rome, was far removed from the tiny hamlet of Bethlehem, even further removed from an understanding of the purposes and plans of God, being utterly ignorant of his word, yet he played a crucial role in fulfilling God's design concerning the birth of his son. And I, Howard Marshall, in his commentary writes, the census serves to place the birth of Jesus in the context of world history and to show that the ruling of an earthly ruler can be utilized in the will of God to bring his more important purposes to fruition. So here's what you need to know. Caesar Augustus is a lot more than just a character in the biblical account. Caesar Augustus is an instrument in the hands of God to accomplish God's plan and God's will, not his own. And some of you get concerned about all that's going on in our world and even here in the United States and the events that are taking place around us that you can hear about on the news every day. We always hear all the bad stuff. Just remember God's the one who's calling the shots. God is still on his throne. He's got the plan. God uses all of it for his purposes. And so, yes, we might have some dark days and we might have some dangerous days and we might have some discouraging days, but all of that is a part of God's plan to bring about his purposes. So Mary and Joseph, they travel 80 miles from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. By all accounts, Mary and Joseph were just insignificant nobodies, not high on the, in social status or anything. They were from a nowhere, nothing town. We've talked about how insignificant a place that Nazareth was and, and how bad of a reputation it, they ha it had there. Joseph and Mary were peasants, poor, probably uneducated. Why in the world would God choose them? Why in the world would God choose an elderly and fertile couple to populate a nation like Abraham and Sarah did? How many times have we noted and talked about the kind of people that God chooses to use? That's the way God likes to do things. Paul told the Corinthian people that God likes to uh, choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong. 
So just when it seems like God can't be anywhere around, you need to know that He's right there in the middle of it all. Even when you don't see Him. Everything's going according to His plan. You know, the journey to pay taxes in Bethlehem put Mary in just the right place for the birth of her child. In fact, 600 to 700 years prior to this time, Micah the prophet had prophesied that the Son of God would be born in that little hamlet called Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too small to be considered of any importance among the tribes of Judah, yet out of you one will come forth that will be ruler over Israel. Dr. Kent Hughes said, they appeared to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history, but every move was under the hand of Almighty God. The Messiah would indeed be born in tiny, insignificant Bethlehem, and as the virgin traveled, her steady beating heart, hidden from the world, kept time with the busily thumping heart of God. And so they come to Bethlehem, where she will give birth to the Son of God the Messiah. A couple side notes here. There are some who teach that Jesus was Mary's only child and that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. The scriptures do not teach that. All right? They teach otherwise. In Matthew 12, 46, it tells how Jesus' mother and brothers were standing outside waiting to speak to Jesus. And in Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all here with us? So Mary gave birth to several other children. But another side note is that the Bible never says exactly where Mary gave birth to Jesus. We know that when he was born that they laid him in a manger. The Greek word is fanuel. It mean, uh, not fanuel, it's fotne. Fotne is the Greek word. And it, it, yeah, it means feeding trough. That's what it was. So they literally placed him in a feeding trough right after his birth. Now where could you find feeding troughs at? Anywhere. Some people kept their animals in part of their houses. You could find a feeding trough any place that you had animals. And there was a tradition that came about in the second century, not long after the birth of Jesus, that he was actually born in a cave. Well, there are several caves in that area. Some are called the shepherd's caves, and we got to see some of them when we were there. The church in the nativity is built over a sort of cave. And as you go into that church and then down this little tiny winding stairway down below, it's a stone surrounding of some sort of cave-like structure. And they have put a place on the floor that they say this is where the actual feeding trough stood. And another place, this is where Mary actually lay when she gave birth. And none of that can be proven. It's not actually known exactly where. But wherever it was... There was no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn. And the only place they had was in an area where some animals were evidently being kept. And one more note, the Bible says Mary wrapped her baby in, in, in the New American Standard says in cloths. 
your Bible may say in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Some uh, get all excited about the swaddling clothes. Some say those are really burial garments and so that even when Jesus was born, they were recognizing the fact that he came to die. And that makes for a good story, but there's no evidence to support it. Swaddling clothes were given to every baby. And the reason why they used them, they were just strips of fabric used to wrap a baby snugly for warmth and for security and to keep the baby's limbs straight. And it is still done today in some parts of the world. So you see the plan of God. Oh, I need to move quick. Notice also the proclamation in verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Think about that for a moment. History's most notable birth took place in the most obscure, humble setting and circumstances. I mean, if you and I were sending the Son of God to the earth, if we're going to have the birth of the King, the, the greatest King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, none of us would have done it this way, would we? But God did. God did. Jesus was born in the place where the animals of those staying in some type of public shelter would have been kept. And in verse 9 it refers to an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds. Not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. wonder which angel this was. The Bible doesn't say, but my own opinion is that likely it was Gabriel again. I mean, he seems to be God's announcing angel, okay? You look at this account, this is the third such announcement, and they're all the same. They all follow the same pattern. Number one, there's an appearance. We see that in verse 9. Number two, there's an announcement. We see it in verse 10. And number three, there's an affirmation, a, a sign, which we see in verse 12. He said, this will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So my own opinion is that it was Gabriel. Verse 9 says, the angel appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. So here are these shepherds out on the hillside. We got to go to the shepherd's fields when we were there. Wonderful place to visit. But suddenly that entire area, it's like a star had burst upon them. The light of the glory of God totally enveloped them. Uh, the light that announced the presence of God. Uh, and this pitch dark night, evidently suddenly it was just like 12 noon or even greater. So these shepherds, they're enveloped in the glory of God. Verse 9 says they were terribly frightened. Verse 10, the angel said, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. That catches my attention. Because nobody in that day would have shared good news with shepherds. They, they wouldn't have. You know where shepherds were on the, on the social ladder? One step above lepers. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with shepherds. They were dirty. They, they were stinky. They worked with stinky sheep, and sheep are stinky. And when the Bible says, oh, we like sheep, and the Bible calls us sheep, folks, it's not a compliment. All right? They, they didn't smell good and, and, and filthy. They were the outcasts of society. And yet here's this announcement, this proclamation of the greatest news the world has ever heard being made to these shepherds. 
But it wasn't just for the shepherds. It was for all the people, according to verse 10. And aren't you glad that the gospel isn't for just a select few? I mean, there are some religious uh, groups who follow the teachings of John Calvin. And the teachings of Calvinism teach the doctrine of election, that God has already sovereignly decided who will be saved and who will be lost. And it doesn't matter what you want, even if you want to go to heaven and you believe in God, if God has decided you're going to be lost, you're going to hell regardless. Oh, I'm glad the Bible doesn't teach that. It does not teach that. The good news is for everybody. Everybody. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So ladies and gentlemen, a gospel that is not for everyone everywhere isn't a gospel for anyone anywhere. If it's not for everybody, it's not for anybody. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentiles like us. So we see the proclamation. Notice the person of the good news in verses 11 and 12. The good news was about the birth of a baby, but not just any baby. This baby was a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. And I don't know if you notice this or not, but the angel gave three titles to this little baby. The angel is telling the shepherds, there's a baby being born, he has three titles. Number one, he's called Savior. And if you remember, both Zacharias and Mary sang songs of praise to God, the Magnificat and the Benedictus, we've already talked about those, and in those songs they both declared Jesus would deliver his people. That's why Gabriel told them, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means, God or Jehovah saves. So he's our Savior, but number two, he's called Christ, Messiah. Same word, two different languages. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. He would be the anointed one, the chosen one. God's appointed king that would sit on the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. He is Savior. He is Christ. And number three, he's Lord. He's Lord. What does it mean to say this baby is Lord? That's a divine title reserved only for God. And so literally this angel was saying, this is God in human flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And over in Romans 10 verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. So he's God in human flesh. Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's the person what about the purpose? What's the purpose of the good news? In verses 13 and 14, the ultimate purpose of this good news is to bring glory to God. In fact, that's the ultimate purpose of everything, right? The glory of God. Everything in all creation, no matter what it is, no matter where it is, no matter who it is, was created to glorify God. Everything is. And you know, for the most part, everything in creation glorifies God. 
The trees of the field, for example, they glorify God. They do what God created them to do. The flowers of the field, they glorify God. They do what God created them to do. The animals, they glorify God. They do what animals are supposed to do. Everything in creation follows what the Creator designed them to do, except one. Anyone want to guess who the one is? That's us. That's us. Mankind, men, women, boys, and girls, the pinnacle of God's creation, the greatest of everything He created from time to time, says, God, I want some of your glory. God, I, I want to do this my own way. Let me get back to you on that, God. I I'm pretty busy right now. Got some things I got to get done in my life, so I'll get back with you. And mankind is the one thing that doesn't always bring glory to God. But the ultimate, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy His benefits. Did you know there were benefits that come with glorifying God? Absolutely. Did you know there were consequences if you don't glorify God? Absolutely. So the ultimate purpose of this good news is the glory of God. How do we know that? Verse 13. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. We know that is the Christmas story, but actually it's a, even a greater story than Christmas. But have you ever wondered why? Why would God love us that much to send His Son? But here, this multitude of angels are there. I wonder how many angels there were in that multitude. One scholar suggests that all the angels were there. All of them. That's a good thought. That all of heaven broke loose rejoicing at the birth of the Son of God. That they finally understood the mystery of God that He had kept hidden from ages past. God sending His own Son to this earth to provide a way back for every man, woman, boy, and girl to be united with God. And so they rejoiced in that. They praised God in that. It must have been a celebration like none that had ever taken place before. But that celebration has happened repeatedly ever since. Did you know that? When? Every time a sinner repents and turns to God, the angels Rejoice. The angels rejoice. Verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. The angel there talks about peace. Paul said in Romans 5:1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Salvation is free for us, folks. But it costs Jesus every drop of His blood. It costs God His only Son. But God loves you so much, He said, you're worth it. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's love. Jesus is the greatest gift ever given. 
So the angels gather together, they're rejoicing, not just because of the greatest gift that ever took place and the greatest birth that ever took place, but because of the eternal life that can be shared with those who will turn to Christ. It was all happening right there on that day, and they were praising God. One last note, and I'm done. I want you to notice the preachers. That's right, I said preachers in verses 15 through 20. Don't know how long the angels hung around, but as soon as they left, the shepherds made a beeline for Bethlehem. They took off, verse, 15, verse 16 says, and they came in haste to Bethlehem, found everything just like they had been told. Do you think they told Mary and Joseph about the angels? Do you think Mary would have told them about Gabriel and Joseph about Gabriel? And I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall when they came. But they got to see the baby boy, and then they left. And their response in verse 17 was to make known the statement which had been told them about this child. And verse 18 says, all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Folks, the shepherds were the first preachers of the gospel. The first, pre the first preachers of the good news that a Savior had come. And verse 20 says, they went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. I think every chance they got, they told the story about Jesus. And my guess is that they never stopped telling people about Jesus. So let me conclude with this question. Shouldn't our response be the same as the shepherds? The answer is absolutely. So let's go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born. A Savior has come. Let's stand and sing.